friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother David for our first episode of 2021. Happy New Year, David. Happy New Year to you, too. It almost doesn't feel real. Yes, 2020 was one of the stranger years that at least I've lived through. It's definitely going to be one they'll be talking about in history podcasts someday, I think. And 2021 shaping up like it could be another year that we're talking about in history podcasts someday. Certainly there's been a lot in the news recently. All right, we should go back a little bit further for this podcast, though. We won't just talk about 2020. Let's go back in time, David, with the question that I ask you. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's May 15th, 1932. And a small group of conspirators are gathering in Tokyo, ready to assassinate Charlie Chaplin. And also to overthrow Japan's democratically elected government and replace it with a dictatorship. Okay, David. I think Charlie Chaplin is a film actor. And I didn't think he had any connection to Japan's democratically elected government. What is going on with these conspirators? They seem to have some wild goals well in japan 1932 it was a wild time in many ways it was a time of radical politics all around as well to start off with the great depression was starting to really bite and people were looking for change but frequently not necessarily guided by any particular obvious principle that we can reconstruct looking backwards. It's They're just looking to see things change in the hopes that they can get better. And at the same time, in Japan specifically, ultra-nationalist politics were both incredibly common and violent. There had been two, two separate coups coup attempts, I should say, uh, attempted by the Cherry Blossom Society in 1931, the year before. And although both of them had failed, neither of them had seen any serious consequences for the coup plotters who attempted to rise up and overthrow the government. They were always let off with mild punishments, short jail sentences at the very worst. So it was a time when somebody who was plotting to change Japan's government was neither unusual nor would they necessarily be limited or fearful. They weren't thinking, you know, we have to have a very concrete plan for how we overthrow the government and that's it. They were thinking big. How do we make the biggest splash, the biggest change in the world with our efforts and at the same time and coincidentally charlie chaplin the famous comedic film star was visiting japan as part of his around the world tour so they saw or they thought they saw a chance to mesh several of their goals into 
one opportunity. All right, so opportunity brews here for the conspirators. They think that taking down Charlie Chaplin, the famous film star, will be a big attention grabber for them. And at the same time, they want to take out the government because they're upset at what is happening. They want change. It is the Great Depression, after all, in 1932. So, David, who are these conspirators? So, they're an interesting mishmash kind of group. I mentioned a moment ago the Sekurakai, uh, my apologies to any Japanese listeners for my pronunciation there, the Cherry Blossom Society. Which, David, doesn't sound very threatening, the Cherry Blossom Society. Usually, if you're overthrowing a government, you can come up with a cooler name than naming yourself after a flower, but it's a way to go, I suppose. Well, the Cherry Blossom Society viewed themselves as a political movement. Unlike their great rivals, the Black Dragon Society, who don't really enter into this story very much. But they do have a much cooler name. The Cherry Blossom Society wanted to court broad popularity amongst the population because they wanted to create a new government. Not a democratically elected one, of course. But nonetheless, they were well aware that too much hostility on the part of ordinary people afraid of scary-sounding men with guns could scupper their plans for running a successful government. So part of the reason why their name was what it was was a deliberate effort to seem appropriately non-threatening. And they had run two coup attempts, as I've said, and for the most part, their senior leaders were still in jail in May 1932, unsurprisingly because... Two coup attempts in one year, even with relatively mild punishments, meant that, you know, people end up in jail for some time. But that sort of left the field open in a way. There were still a lot of radicals about where the Cherry Blossom Society had mostly appealed to the army. The Navy, although less politically organized, had its own radical factions, and most of the plotters on May 15th were Navy officers, junior Navy officers, typically, and supported by a general mishmash of Cherry Blossom Society members who hadn't been arrested in the previous arrests, radical civilians of various political stripes, mostly, but not entirely right-wing, and even the occasional actual political figure who thought that hitching their careers to the radical coup train was the way to go. All right, David, so we have a group who want to overthrow the government. There's some Navy, some Army, some civilians, some politicians. Bit of a mismatch, but there is a group in place do they have a plan, David? Well, the long answer is they have too many plans. Um, most of them completely not feasible. There are various people promising different things that are going to go down. They agree on May 15th as the date. Most of the plans that they agree on, most of the conspirators, don't actually go ahead when it comes to actually attempting violence, a bunch of people who were willing to talk big don't 
actually show up on the day. But there's one group of 11 Navy officers, all of them extremely junior, with no particular leadership backing them up, who do actually get together. And they are amongst those who were plotting to assassinate Charlie Chaplin. But that's not the entirety of their plan. Their secondary plan, their primary objective, is to assassinate the Prime Minister of Japan. All right, David, so they have two very high-profile targets here, the Prime Minister and Charlie Chaplin. How do they plan to go about this on May 15th? Well, and this may sound extraordinary, but they're well aware that neither of their two targets and they actually have more than just two targets. They also have plans to assassinate the finance minister. They have plans to potentially hunt other government officials, although most of those plans rely on other conspirators uh, rising up and attacking at the same time, which won't end up happening. But none of their targets have any particularly heavy security, even though... You would think, with all the political violence and coup attempts and assassinations going around Japan in the early 1930s, that security for political figures would be a particularly important objective. That's not how the Japanese security services tend to view things. The Army and the Navy are both focused on the war in Manchuria, which has just started at this point and hasn't really spilled over into a general war with China, but certainly theoretically could. And that means that Army and Navy protection is not generally available for the Prime Minister or anyone else. And the police view themselves as detectives, as charged with finding out who committed crimes, not preventing crimes by guarding public figures. So our would-be assassin's basic plan is they're going to go to the prime minister's residence, which is not a secret, and they're going to kick in the door and murder him. Well, David, it's inelegant, but the opportunity is there. Take us to May 15th, and what is going to unfold? Well, things start well for our 11 conspirators. They go to the prime minister's residence. They kick in the door, burst in. They see Prime Minister Inukai Tsuyoshi. And Prime Minister Inukai immediately recognizes what is going on, that this is an attack. His last words are, if I could only speak, you would understand. Wow, pretty good last words right there. Reports state that the Eleven respond shouting, Dialogue is useless. One of their political slogans favoring violence over dialogue before they kill him. That's never a good sign for a democracy, David, when their slogan is dialogue is useless. I would say that murdering the prime minister is probably a worse sign for the democracy. Yeah, it's going downhill for sure. And then our conspirators turn to try and get into contact with the other groups they expect to be rising up across Tokyo at this moment. 
and they find out that there basically are none. There's been a couple of arrests of scattered reports of madmen, etc., but there's no large-scale uprising. So our conspirators leave, pack themselves all into a couple of cars, and head out onto the streets of Tokyo, still hoping to inspire a general uprising. They throw some hand grenades at the finance minister's house. They don't actually hurt anyone. Then they try and cut an electricity transmission substation. Not clear what they thought that was going to do. After that, they try and figure out where Charlie Chaplin is. They thought he would be staying with the prime minister, but although he was actually staying at the prime minister's house, he had been out at the time they'd burst in, and after word got out that the prime minister had been assassinated, Mr. Chaplin decided not to return there, unsurprisingly. So they can't figure out where he is, and then they eventually realize that this is going nowhere, and in an exceptional decision, all 11 of them call a taxi company and hire taxis to take them to the nearest police station so that they can surrender. David, that is quite the spree, quite the eventful day for these 11 conspirators. They managed to kill the prime minister and then go on this general spree across the city of Tokyo and then at the end of the day turn themselves in to the police. What does the rest of Tokyo think of this? Well, in the near term, responses are pretty muted, mostly because it takes a while before anybody hears about these guys. You have to understand, one of the other groups of conspirators who didn't show up were supposed to seize the radio stations and read out their bold manifesto about how they're going to change governments and make things better for Japan and etc. But that didn't happen. So all that people were getting was scattered news reporting that the prime minister had been assassinated and weird things were happening across the city. So for the first day or so, most people just have no idea what what's going on or what it has anything has to do with anything else. The revolution will not be televised or broadcast on the radio or really generally known at all. So most Japanese citizens will learn about who these guys are and what they were up to at their extremely well-publicized trial, which follows very shortly afterwards because, as previously noted, they conveniently turned themselves in to the police and gave a fairly extensive confession about what they had been up to. All right, David, so that would seem to make trying them pretty easy if they've given a pretty extensive confession, but... It could be a PR coup for them to use the trial to their benefit. It is. That's exactly right. The trial is a massive PR coup for these young men. Famously, they solicit and receive 110,000 requests for clemency from the population of Japan. 1,000 for each of the 11 naval officers who are on trial for this incident. So there is some sympathy for them among the population. There is definitely a lot of sympathy 
a lot of people view them as misguided, possibly, but there's a lot of support for change at the time. The war in Manchuria is popular with some factions of the country, unpopular with others, but everybody wants the government's policy of sort of doing it half-heartedly changed. Obviously, the Great Depression, the economic situation, people are hungry for change. And even many people who oppose the political efforts that these men are making to oppose the changes that they want to make feel some sympathy for the idea of radical political change and violence. And this makes the trial very politically fraught for the government, which in turn leads in the end to the prosecution deciding to ask for only very light sentences for all 11 officers once again. Haven't they learned their lesson, David? They gave out light sentences for the last two coup attempts, and it just led to another coup attempt and a dead prime minister. But once again, they're going to end up getting off with light sentences here. Indeed. There will actually be another two coup attempts, one in 1934 and one in 1936. It's only in 1936 that the Japanese government hands down the death penalty for some of the coup plotters involved in that one. The Japanese government at the time feels sympathy for the radicals. And the population feels sympathy for the idea of violent radicalism. And ultimately, that's one of the lessons of this incident, is if there are no consequences for the use of violent radicalism rather than collaborative politics, then people will choose the violent option if they feel that that is the better way to win. Well, David, I'm sure some people can come up with some modern parallels for that lesson that there needs to be punishment for radical coup attempts, violent attempts to overthrow the government, or else it will lead to just more of them. What else is the fallout from this era of violence and attempts at overthrowing the government in Japan? Well, let's move back to the Charlie Chaplin thing, just for a second. It sounds wacky to modern ears. They plan to kill a comedian just to get more attention for their coup attempt than, you know, only murdering politicians. But it's also tied to the radical right-wing ultra-nationalist ideology that these plotters hold. Charlie Chaplin, of course, is... English, technically, but is most associated with America. And the plotters viewed it as a way of demonstrating how much they despised the United States, as a way of forcing a confrontation with the United States, a country that they felt was to blame for many of the problems that Japan was facing at the time. Of course, in 1941... Japan would start a violent confrontation with the United States. And in 1945, that confrontation would end having developed, as the 
emperor eventually admitted not entirely in Japan's favor. Right, so we can see the roots of the conflicts in World War II, the fight between Japan and the U.S. in this attempt to kill Charlie Chaplin, a representative of Hollywood and America. Exactly, especially because that is how the radicals involved conceptualized it. It probably wouldn't have started a war with America in 1932 if Charlie Chaplin were murdered in Japan. Most likely, things would have moved through the ordinary diplomatic channels. But the fact that the plotters wanted to start a war with America reminds you that politics tends to deliver, especially in a democratic society, what the people want. But getting what you wish for isn't always a good idea. And Charlie Chaplin, David, did he get out of Japan? Did he know that he was targeted in these assassination attempts? Well, Charlie Chaplin unsurprisingly left Japan fairly shortly afterwards. He found out, like the rest of the world, uh, that he had been a target in the confession of the Eleven. Um, if they had not confessed that they wanted to kill Charlie Chaplin, we would not know to this day that he was on their hit list and was only saved because he happened to be attending a sumo wrestling match, which is very Japanese of him. I can imagine some physical comedy involving Charlie Chaplin and sumo wrestlers just based on the body type differences. So David, is there any more fallout from this coup attempt that foretold the future, foreshadowed what was to come for Japan? So as well as the additional coup attempts that would follow on, which I've already mentioned, and the war with the U.S., which we've mentioned, the other thing which this coup attempt really highlighted as highly likely at the very least, and as in fact point of fact happened, was an extension of the war in Manchuria from what it was at the time, a dispute between Japan and China, which had turned violent, but in which the Japanese civilian government was attempting to restrain uh, the Japanese military from further advances, certainly further advances deep into China proper, into the major cities of the south rather than Manchuria in the north. But that was ultimately unsustainable. And the fact that these coup plotters were already in 1932, which is very early, demanding that the government prosecute the war wholeheartedly probably should have been a warning sign that something like what would eventually occur, the Marco Polo Bridge incident, where a Japanese army unit operating on its own attacked into China proper against orders, and then when the Japanese civilian government was unwilling to admit that the unit had gone rogue on them, that extended the war in China into a total war between the two countries. That too is an element of Japan's, at this point, future that should have been made more clear to the Japanese civilian government than it was when they examined the fallout of this coup attempt, which at the time was treated more as a joke than as what it was, a violent political assassination 
driven by an ideology that, in less extreme forms, was all too common throughout the country. Well, David, as we mentioned, there are always lessons to learn from history. Thanks for telling us this story so that we can draw some conclusions that might be useful today. I'm sure everyone listening knows what was on my mind in terms of news at the time when I started researching this incident just this past week. If you want to learn some more from history, you can follow Oh Brother When Art Thou on social media. Our handle on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook is at When Art Thou. I also want to point out on our Instagram page, we've added some highlights. So if you go to our profile at When Art Thou or Instagram.com slash When Art Thou, then you can see just below our profile highlights of different types of history and clicking on that will give you links to episodes that pertain to whatever part of history you're interested in. So that's a good way to get a quick and easy way to find episodes that are of interest to you. Check it out on Instagram at when art thou. David, we always like to end with a quiz, something a little lighter. And so let's today jump ahead from violent insurrections to the legitimate democratic governments. As today, we're recording this on January 20th, which is, of course, the presidential inauguration in the United States. Joe Biden was sworn in today. So I have a quiz, David, about presidential inaugurations. All right, let's try it. So let's start with January 20th. As I mentioned, that is our date today. Who was the first president inaugurated on January 20th? Ah, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to it. It must have been very early because William Henry Harrison famously had his inauguration in the cold. I would guess perhaps, well, why not go with the very first president, George Washington? It's a good guess, David, and I like where your brain was thinking, but you've been led astray by William Henry Harrison because it wasn't actually until Franklin Roosevelt in 1937 he became the first president inaugurated after the ratification of the 20th Amendment, which changed the inaugural date to January 20th. We know that President Biden is the oldest president at the time of his inauguration. Who was the youngest? The youngest president sworn in. Another tricky one. Um, I'm going to guess John Fitzgerald Kennedy because, of course, he was famously young as a president. This was a tricky one, David. You are correct that John F. Kennedy was the youngest elected president at 43 years old when he was sworn in. But Teddy Roosevelt was actually 42 years old when he was sworn in following the death of President McKinley. So that was a trick question. This one's not a trick question. Who was the first president to have his inauguration broadcast on the radio? I wonder if it was Herbert Hoover. He would be around the right time for early radio. You are around the right time, David. It was Calvin Coolidge in 1925. Harry Truman would be the first president to have his inauguration broadcast on TV in 1949. Who was the first president inaugurated for a term limited by the Constitution? The first president inaugurated for a term that was limited by the Constitution. Of course, now presidents can only serve two terms, but 
prior to this president, they were able to serve longer. At least it wasn't limited by the Constitution. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the president who was part of what caused the movement to install term limits, but I'm not entirely certain about the sequence of events. Still, I'm going to guess his immediate successor, Harry Truman. You got it, David. Harry Truman in 1944 became the first president inaugurated after the passage of the 22nd Amendment, which codified the tradition that George Washington started when he stepped down after two terms in office in 1796. Of course, you mentioned that FDR was the one who broke the tradition and created the need for the 22nd Amendment. Last question for you, David. Following which president's inauguration was the first inaugural ball? The first inaugural ball. That's another one of those traditions that sounds like it certainly could have been very early on in American history, so I'm tempted to guess one of the early presidents, but I really do not know when the inaugural ball was initiated. Perhaps I'll guess John Adams. You are close, David. It was James Madison in 1809 who had the first inaugural ball, a fun part of the inauguration process. We hope everyone had some fun with the quiz. Thanks for playing, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. <laughs>